Welcome to the Identity Talk for Educators Live podcast, the show for the unsung heroes of education. I'm your host, Kwame Sarfamensa, and on this podcast, I highlight the unspoken and unsung heroes who are changing the education game as we know it. Every day, I come across the work of so many incredible educators who simply don't get the recognition they deserve. So on this podcast, we will provide you, the audience, with an opportunity to learn the personal stories of these incredible educators and the specific elements that shape who they are in and out of the classroom. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Welcome to a brand new episode of Identity Talk for Educators Live, the show for the unsung heroes of education. I'm your host, Kwame Sarfamensa. And if this is your first time tuning in to the podcast, I welcome you and I hope that today's episode is one that will bring you back for more if you like what you see or hear wherever you are. And if you're a returning listener or viewer of the podcast, I welcome you back and I hope that today's episode is one that you find informative, enlightening, and of course, insightful. So before we get into the main event, if you are on YouTube, please make sure you hit that red subscribe button to get future notifications on new episodes. If you're listening from Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your audio podcast, make sure you subscribe there as well. Also, we do accept monetary donations through Cash App or Venmo if you want to help us continue to build this awesome platform. Um, if you're on Cash App, the handle would be money sign ID Talk for Ed. And if you're on Venmo, the handle will be at Kwame SM. That's K W A M E S M. And then, of course, you can check out past episodes of this podcast on our YouTube channel which is under my name, Kwame Salfamensa, or you can go to the official website, identitalk4educators.com. Thank you kindly. Now, today's episode is one that's going to be focused on college advising, helping our young people in high school get ready for that next level. And I know there's been a lot of talk about that. There's been talk about how to prepare our high schoolers for that next stage in the education, given what's going on with the pandemic. But I have someone who is coming on today who has a wealth of knowledge when it comes to college preparation and just motivating our young people uh, to get ready for the next level, as well as their parents. Uh, so without further ado, I want to bring on Sheila Akbar who is the COO of Signet Education. And she's going to talk to us about how to prepare young people for college. So let's bring her on. Hey, Sheila. Hey, Kwame. Thanks for uh, having me. Thanks for that nice it. introduction. It's going well. Yeah. Happy to be here. All right, awesome. So we always like to start off the conversations just letting the guests tell us 
how they got into the education field. So I'll give you the floor to just share your humble beginnings and what brought you into this wonderful field that we're Thank both you. in. Yeah, absolutely. I, I try to keep it short, but it is kind of a long story. <laughs> so um, actually, as a child, I remember always wanting to become a teacher. And I also remember uh, my parents being immigrants saying, you know, that's all good, but you really need a job that pays better, comes with more respect. We want you to be X, Y, or Z. So I went and did X, Y, and Z. Um to try to please them, but I kept coming back to teaching. Um, so, you know, long story short, I went to Harvard. I was a pre-med somewhere in the middle of my college days. I realized, you know, I don't really want to be a doctor. That's not where my passion lies. I hadn't really built the skills or, or developed a framework for thinking about my future because I'd always just done what my parents wanted. Uh, so I didn't know how to think about what was next. And so I uh, followed everybody else. I, I went into finance uh, and I really did not like it. <laughs> and um, when I left there, I thought about different kinds of grad school, uh, you know, felt very lost and confused um, until I remembered one of the things that I've always enjoyed since I was younger was literature and poetry. So I went back to grad school and, and I studied poetry and then I went and did a PhD because I loved it so much. And I loved being in that environment where I could really be a scholar, but I was also responsible for, you know, inspiring, educating young people around the things that I found so meaningful in literature and writing um, and poetry. So um, I finally came back around to it, you know, some 20 years later. <laughs> um, and I, uh, in the course of, of doing my graduate studies, I had started tutoring. Um, I was tutoring writing, SAT, ACT, um, things like that. And a friend of mine had started a Signet Education and I eventually joined him while I was writing my dissertation. And it became very clear very quickly that I enjoyed working with high schoolers more than I enjoyed writing my dissertation. Um, and so I finished my PhD, but um, I stayed on the Signet because I just find it so meaningful um, and, and you know, truly rewarding and enjoyable um, to help high schoolers, you know, get the most out of their high school education, share my own story of kind of living someone else's dream and then coming into a realization that I needed to take ownership of my own education. Um, you know, changing my relationship to education, um, plotting a path forward that is both sort of strategic, goal-oriented, but also um, flexible enough to accommodate opportunities that come along. Um, and so that's really become part of the mission of Signet is uh, to help teenagers find their path, navigate high school and the college process, and go to a college that's going to help them achieve their goals. So that's kind of the story. Ah, right, cool, cool. Well, as I was doing my research on you, um, I learned something that I think is a first. And you got to talk okay. to us about this. Did you really do two PhDs? Oh, <laughs> you can do two PhDs. Yeah, that's true. What? Yeah. Um, so they were related and not okay. every institution will allow you to do this, but I started, 
Oh, I think we broke up a little bit. Can you hear? I can still hear you. Okay, great. So yeah, I, I, um, so the longer version of the story is I, you know, when I was floundering and lost after I'd left my job on Wall Street, I wasn't sure that I wanted to commit to a PhD. So I did a, a master's first um, and I just totally loved it and was like, okay, yeah, PhD is the way I'm going to go. Um, I also discovered during my master's program that I had a thing for comparative literature, not just, so the poetry that I study is Persian and Arabic uh, early modern love poetry. Uh, and I had been focused on sort of a language and cultural studies department approach to that literature. Uh, but in my master's program, discovered comparative literature and literary theory and like different ways of thinking about world literatures. Uh, and so I applied for PhDs in comparative literature. While I was doing that, I added on the PhD in Near Eastern Languages and Civilizations, which was more of a continuation of my master's. So I did coursework for both degrees. I did qualifying exams in both degrees. Um, thankfully, I wrote one dissertation, but it was probably twice as long as it would have been if I had only done one PhD. So I was able to do them at the same time. Uh, cool. Well, bravo to you. Kudos. Because you. not too many people would pursue that. So I commend you. Yeah, I think, you know, I'm kind of a chronic overachiever. <laughs> so that's that's probably where that came from. Also, my parents really wanted me to become a doctor. And I was like, well, now I am doctor, doctor. Thank you very much. There you go. So it's a win-win. Parents are happy yeah. and you're happy. So everybody's happy. Yeah, yeah. So outside of your love for modern love poetry, you also did pre-med while you are at Harvard. So I really want to know how you were able to make the transition from being a pre-med at Harvard to then learning about early modern love poetry to then eventually pursuing entrepreneurship in education. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's kind of the story, is it? Um, I, you know, like I said, I, I was under a lot of uh, family and let's say cultural pressure um, to become a doctor. You know, as a child of immigrants, um, they they really saw medicine as a path to success, unquestionable success. Um, whereas any other path I might take, yeah, there's some question: Are you going to be a successful person or not? Right? And they had a very clear definition of success in their mind. Um, so I always also really loved math and science. That was my jam in high school. I was on like math team and, you know, loved all my science classes more than anything else. Um, and so, it, you know, it kind of made sense. I, I convinced myself that I could be happy pursuing that path. I did all my pre-med requirements at Harvard. They were challenging, but I did them because I, I actually did enjoy the material. Um, I think it was when it was time to sign up for the MCAT that I was like, wait, really? Am I going to do this to myself when I really don't see myself in it? I just kind of had to listen to that inner voice. And um, that inner voice got stronger the more I listened to it, the more I tried to explore, like, what is this discomfort I'm feeling with pursuing this path, with committing to applying to med school or, or you know, as I um, left Wall Street, I was thinking about film school or architecture. And like, I just had this kind of like nagging feeling. And I had to practice listening to that voice. Um, but when I did listen to it, I just sort of looked at my reality and I actually have a, 
I'm going to show you. I have a copy of this book on my desk because this is the thing. So somebody gave me this when I was 16. This is actually the book from when I was 16. There's like some underline and stuff in here, dog-eared pages. Um, this was my introduction to the poetry that, you know, became my PhD. And um, I would read it when I was feeling stressed out, when I was, you know, working 80 hours a week on Wall Street, not feeling like I had any mentors around me or people who inspired me, um, you know, not feeling like the work I was doing had any real meaning or a positive impact on the world, uh, I would read this poetry. And one day it dawned on me that, oh, maybe <laughs> that thing that I keep turning to, maybe that's the thing I should do. And it was just this huge light bulb moment. It was like right there in front of me, so obvious, right? But for whatever reason, I wasn't allowing myself to see it. Um, and so then I you know, went off to become this scholar of early modern poetry. I didn't know that's what I was going to do. But, you know, I thought about, OK, yeah, the life of a professor sounds pretty sweet. Um, I get to educate people. I get to um, read the stuff that I'm interested in reading and write about it. And I liked all of that. Right. And it wasn't that I didn't like academia. I think there are problems with the system of academia and obviously problems with the system of higher education. Um, yes. But I you know, I thought the the job itself was okay, you know, um, and it was really that something else came along that um, moved me even more and got that inner voice really excited again about, oh, yeah, this is the thing. Um, so um, I think it, it really the lesson, and this is the lesson that I try to teach all of my students is you've got to listen to that inner voice. And it's not an impulsive voice. It's not a voice that's like, oh, I just want to watch TV all day and, and eat candy. <laughs> um, it's what, what, what legacy might I want to leave in the world? What, how do I want to spend my days? You know, what kind of people do I want to be impacting? Because it's, for me, it's always about something bigger than just pleasing myself, right? Uh, and the more I listened to that voice, the more it just took me to these places. Um, and, and most of the time it wasn't a, wasn't a decision that I could sit down and plan. It was uh, me creating opportunities for myself because I was listening to that voice um, or me putting myself out there and creating an opportunity for myself um, because I'm just who I am. So, you know, the example I give of that is I started tutoring for Signet. Uh, uh, and I started as an SAT tutor, but I had been doing that for so long and worked for so many other companies doing that, that I was able to see like there are some best practices that would be really helpful here at Signet. Uh, and I you know, brought that to the leadership and they said, yeah, great. Let's build a curriculum and a new training and gave me the reins. And, and I was able to do that. And then from there, I looked around and I was like, you know what? The college admissions practice that we have could probably use some of the same kind of best practices and standards and training and maybe some more personnel. So then I got, you know, became in charge of that. I was able to look across the business at all of our different services and kind of level up our quality and training standards um, and even our hiring practices. And so I became the director of education in 2012, maybe. Um, and that was a role that didn't exist before I suggested it. Um, and then I became president and COO in 2018. And again, that was a role that didn't exist until I suggested it. And it was a role that I was able to um, create and inhabit 
because of all the different things I had done previously, not just the training, curriculum development, hiring stuff, operational stuff, but even stuff from previous lives, you know, the pedagogical methods I had studied during my PhD and then had actually practiced teaching at the university level. Um, the, you know, deep spreadsheet and financial analysis work that I learned when I worked on Wall Street, even though I didn't like that job, there were a lot of skills that I brought with me from it. Um, so I, I really um, see this as an evolution and there are um, connections between all of those things, even though it felt like I was making, you know, a complete 180 every time I made a change. Now, when you first entered Signet, did you foresee yourself being there for over a decade? Was that the initial plan or did it just turn out to happen this way? <laughs> <laughs> That's such a good question. Up until I joined Signet, I had never held a job for more than two years. And it was, I wasn't getting fired. I was quitting. I was like, I think this is the thing. Oh, no, it's not the thing anymore. I'm going to leave and do something else. Um, and uh, it's interesting because it kind of mirrors um, my living situation, too. Right. I uh, Growing up, we moved every two or three years. Um, my, my father was a doctor. He re-specialized. He did a fellowship here. He went and did this thing there. And we moved around a lot. Uh, and I really get excited when I get to travel somewhere new or land somewhere new. Um, it feels um, exhilarating to me. And I think that's because I moved so much. And I think that's kind of one of the things that happened with my work life because I love having a new challenge. And after about two years, you know, you should kind of master your role. And so I needed something new, right? Um, and so there's that kind of restlessness in me, I suppose, like a career wanderlust, if you might, you might call it. Um, so yeah, when I joined Signet, I did not think this was going to be, a, you know, I've been there for 12 years now. Um, I did not think that was what was going to happen. And, you know, even today, I, you know, I'm certainly not going anywhere. I, I love the work I do at Signet and I'm an owner and I'm a, I'm a key person. Um, I'm, I'm always going to want to be a part of this organization. Um, it's very hard for me to think about what else might I want to do. Um, but that question is back there. You know, I know that I know that voice is still in there saying, like, there's more. Go, go do it. So we'll see. Yeah, I always feel like the best opportunities or the best experiences are the ones that are right under our nose and we don't even realize it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I, I firmly believe that. But uh, earlier you were mentioning about college mm -hmm. and, you know, college is something that is a huge topic um, that's being talked about in different circles, particularly with the impact of COVID and other things that have taken place the past few years. I'm thinking back to my own experience when applying for college, and I'll be the mm -hmm. first to acknowledge I didn't really have enough knowledge in terms of how to prepare. I mean, we're talking early 2000s, so at that time, you would do your research on college board. So this is like the mm -hmm. era of AOL, slow connections, yeah, you know, dial up. <laughs> See, the youngins don't know about that. They don't so know. <laughs> they don't know about that. Yeah. But that was our internet at that time. So mm -hmm. I remember getting this uh, college board CD that you will put into the, you know, into your computer and it literally had statistics on all the universities 
mm-hmm. average SAT scores, um, and, and a few other features. And literally, the only thing I looked at was SAT scores. And my whole thought process was, if the SAT score combined was something over 1,400, I didn't even look at the school because mm-hmm. in my mind, I thought, okay, they probably don't want me to be a part of it. But in mm-hmm. hindsight, I realized I probably I probably prematurely took myself out of the opportunity to get into university yeah. because I didn't consider other factors that, you know, you could look at, which is community service or, right. you know, your grades and, and other factors. So I, I want to know from you, just given your experience working with young people and helping and parents, mm-hmm. you know, and helping them prepare for college. What's the secret to getting <laughs> to getting these students into the college of their dreams? I don't, is there like a magical formula, or is it just an a la carte type of situation? I wish. I mean, there kind of is one thing that I can say, but it's essentially that it's going to be different for every student, right? Um, yeah. I, I think that the for for seeing it. What we truly believe and what we practice when we're working with a student to help them figure out what colleges might they want to consider, how do they present themselves in their application to those colleges. What we're always thinking about is who are you as a person? What are your values and how can you show that you share the same values as the college does? Right. And that's a difficult thing to do, uh, especially for a teenager who maybe has never really thought about like, what are my values, <laughs> right? They're just becoming adults, right? They're starting to think about these things, but um, probably have never been asked to think about them in any explicit, concrete way. Um, and then you also have to read between the lines when you're researching a college to figure out what do they value and how do they demonstrate that value and how can I connect those dots? right? The college application is essentially a portfolio of information that is meant to argue that a student and a college are a great fit for each other. It's not a one-way street. It's not students begging, let me in, let me in, let me in. It's also colleges being able to say, oh, I think we need, we need that from that kind of student, right? Whether that's uh, diversity, whether that's a different way of thinking, uh, different interests, you know, people who are going to come and start clubs and uh, institutions on their campus. We're going to make that college better or make the experience, the learning experience better for other students who are there. Um, there are a lot of different ways to think about that, right? So just as you were saying, it's not just about the SAT score, right? That can be a helpful indicator of the level of academic rigor you could expect somewhere, right? But um, it's not always going to tell you, are you a good fit for that college? And is that college a good fit for you? So it all comes down to that, that fit, right? And you could define it in so many different ways. That's where it becomes unique for each student. Um, The example I'll give is, you know, my parents, so I grew up in Michigan, they were like, you're going to go to University of Michigan, where your brother is, which I didn't want to do. Yeah, Ann Arbor. Um, or you're going to go to Harvard. Yeah, yeah. Big Wolverine fans in our family. So I just didn't want to be where my brother was because I felt like he would be watching over me and I kind of wanted to be independent. I was a you know, second child. I was a rebel. I wanted to do my own thing. They were like, OK, your other choice is Harvard. And I was like, well, you can't just say I'm, I'm going to go to Harvard. Right. Like they're all like 
you know, other people controlling that. Um, and I think if I had had uh, a mentor who understood this process better than I did at the time, better than my parents did at the time, I would have maybe ended up somewhere else, but I, I didn't have that. So Harvard or, or Michigan, you know, you can't lose. They're both great institutions, right? But I knew I wanted to get away from home. Um, and the, it's like now, I mean, college admissions has changed quite a bit since I applied. I don't think I would get it to Harvard if I applied. And I had a perfect SAT score and perfect grades and like a whole portfolio of things. I don't know if I would get it. But I will tell you that I think one of the things that did help me at the time was that I wrote a lot about how interested in, you know, again, this poetry I was and how there was a professor at Harvard who studied exactly this poetry. And it just so happened that nobody else cared <laughs> about that thing, right? So I really stood out as very unique. There weren't, when I got there, there were no other majors in this major. I was the only one. And oh, wow. obviously the university had invested a lot of money in professors, library resources, a building for this entire department. They need to keep that going. And so if they have someone who is interested in it, then, okay, maybe I got a little favoritism in the process because I wasn't applying for everything that, you know, everyone else was applying for, right? They needed to, to have, you know, people for those professors to teach. Um, so I always encourage students, don't just try to do what you think a college wants because you are going to be, you know, presenting some two-dimensional version of you that's actually a stereotype and is not uniquely authentically you. But if you really double down on who you are, what your values are, what's important to you, and specifically, why are you a match for that college and why is that college a match for you, you can't go wrong, right? Because college is not just about getting in. It's about thriving there, learning what you want to learn, meeting the people you want to meet, you know, being inspired by your surroundings, but also not drowning in a crazy workload, not being forced to do things that you don't find meaningful or you don't care about, right? Like taking certain types of classes if a college has a, has a big set of requirements or something like that for gen ed. Um, so really you're doing yourself a disservice by not being authentically you in that application, right? And that that may be the, the big secret is like be yourself. <laughs> Um, and nobody wants to believe it because we all have this sort of imposter syndrome of like, I can't possibly be good enough. There's nothing interesting about me. Um, and I have so many students who come to me and say, I don't have any stories to tell. And I'm like, well, you know, tell me how you spend your free time. And there's always something really fascinating in there. Right. You know, um, I have this girl who's um, a lacrosse player. And I was like, tell me like the weirdest thing about you that maybe you don't really tell anybody else or People are surprised to learn about you. And it turns out she's a very talented crocheter. And she crochets all these like tiny little animals. They're so cute. And she gives them to her friends. And it's like her favorite thing to give people. It's such a great story. And I never would have expected it. Right. Um, and it helped us get into topics that um, are really unique and special about her that she just had discounted because you know, she really wants to go to like Notre Dame. She thinks all Notre Dame students are like this. So I have to be like that. Right. right. But I'm, I'm helping her see, you no, know, you can be yourself and show how much of an asset you're going to be to that campus. Um, and that's the way in. But I think it goes back to what you said earlier about young people not really knowing who they are at age 17, 18 years old when they're applying for schools. Right. 
you know, you're still trying to figure that part out. And I love what you said about fit because so often in our society, we put too much of an onus on elite universities. So for example, Ivy League schools, like you went Mm -hmm. to Harvard. Mm -hmm. Some people might have gone to Brown or Princeton, Mm -hmm. you know, or Dartmouth. And we tend to think that you got to be in those schools in order to be a legitimate scholar. Mm -hmm. But in all actuality, it's not really about being in those schools. It's about what school is the best fit for you, like you mentioned. So Mm -hmm. how do you communicate that to parents and young people? Because I know there are parents who are stuck on like the Yales and the Princetons and you have to be like, well, listen, these are good colleges, but given what your daughter or your son wants to study, maybe you should look into this school. They have a better school that focuses specifically on that major. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. I, I have that conversation with people all the time. You know, a lot of kids want to um, start their own business. They're very entrepreneurial and, and they'll tell me, I want to go to Harvard and study business. And I'm like, you can't study business at Harvard. You could do that at the graduate level. You could get an MBA there, but there is no undergraduate business major. There's not even an accounting major, right? Um, there's one, at least when I was there, uh, there was one corporate finance class that you could take within the economics department. But there was nothing else like about, you know, how the stock market works and how businesses function and, you know, all like marketing and all of that stuff. There's just not, that's not what they do there, right? If you really want to study entrepreneurship and you want to be in the Boston area, maybe Babson is going to be a better fit for that, right? And so what we try to do is educate families, particularly parents who might be stuck on a brand name or something like that about, What is the reality of going to that school, right? Can your students study what they want to study or have these opportunities um, to do the internships or research or uh, whatever it is that they want, they need to do in order to achieve their goals? And um, let's think about the outcomes, not just the incoming, right? Where can I get in that sounds really good, but what's going to happen to you on the other end, right? Um, If, um, if, if they want um, to go you know, work on Wall Street, Harvard might be a great place for them to be able to go do that because there is a strong connection between Harvard and Wall Street and there is like a pathway, there are like recruiting programs. Um, but if they want to, um, I don't know, I'm gonna make it up, like go work in, um, I don't know, agricultural technology and they're super, super smart. Well, like Harvard is probably not the place for that, right? There are better schools for those specific types of programs, um, like um, Cal Poly in San Luis Obispo is one of the best programs in agriculture. Um, But how many people have actually heard of that, right? So the question then becomes, what do you care about and why? Do you care about the brand name? And why do you care about it? You think it's gonna bring you more opportunity? You think it's gonna open doors for you? Some of that may be true. But if you don't have the education needed to succeed in whatever path you want to take, then maybe that brand name is not actually going to be as helpful as you think, right? When I um, did my PhD, I went to Indiana University and a number of people were like, well, you did your undergrad and master's at Harvard. How are you going to go to Indiana? It's a public university in the middle of nowhere. Like what, (laughs) what are you doing? You know, my parents were probably among the top questioners. But when I showed them, actually, 
there's an amazing scholar of Persian literature there who approaches Persian literature in a way that I'm interested in and nobody else is doing the work that he's doing. There's also two amazing scholars of Arabic literature there who are literally the best in the world. And cost of living is this, and you know, I could buy a house. And you know, when I gave them all the reasons this is a better fit for me and what I want to do, then they finally understood it. Right. So I think it's about kind of getting under the surface and asking yourself why, um, or asking, you know, a parent or a student, why are you, you know, fixated on this or that? Like, what is it going to open for you? What what opportunities is it going to create for you? And are there other ways to get to that opportunity? So I'm going to throw a curveball question. Okay. Just stay with me for a second. Sure. Now, we know that in certain universities, especially in the top universities, you know, we have students who enroll in those universities as legacies, right? I'm wondering if you've ever had a situation where you had a, a young person who could potentially be a legacy at a university and they were just thinking about going there because maybe their mother, their father, or they had an uncle or aunt or some family member who attended university. Um, and are, are there any advantages to doing that financially? Um, well, sure. Yeah. Um, you know, many colleges are moving away from giving special benefits to legacy students. At most of them now, <clears throat> excuse me, the most you'll get for being a legacy is a guaranteed second read, right? So when admissions people are reading, sometimes they're gonna read your application once and say, yeah, I don't think you're gonna make it. Um, but if you're legacy, then, you know, someone else might read it as well, just to make sure, you know, they give you that kind of additional consideration. If we're talking about legacies where people are donating millions and millions of dollars, that's another story. Universities don't really like to talk about that, but that's like a thing that's happening. Those people aren't coming to me for help. I'll tell you that. <laughs> they just go straight in, right? Um, <clears throat> but I, I mean, yeah, we've seen a lot of students who are like, well, mom and dad went to Dartmouth, so I feel like I have to apply there. Or, um, you know, we're a really big uh, Wolverine family and I just, I have to go there, right? I had a student, actually, <laughs> a student last year who we thought Clemson was a perfect fit for her. But she's like, but like, I like their rival football team. Like, I have grown up hating Clemson. I'm like, okay, really? <laughs> like, is that the reason to not go to a school that for all the other ways seems like the perfect fit for you to study what you want to study and, like, have all the opportunities you want to have? Like, can you get over this football thing? <laughs> you know? And for some people, they can't. For some people, that family pressure or the desire to be part of a legacy, like, wanting to be able to say, oh, my grandfather, my uncle, my auntie, my mom, my sister, everybody went here, right? And maybe that's something that's really meaningful to them for whatever reason. Um, but I'm always, always really concerned when a student is doing something for someone else's reasons, right? Mm -hmm. And they may end up doing the thing that their family wants if they have their own reason for it. And it's like, you know, authentically their own reason, sure, let's do it, right? But I really want to make sure they have their own motivation for doing things. And sometimes we have to do the work to figure out what that motivation is. Like, I'm feeling a lot of pressure to apply to this school because, you know, my whole family's always gone there. And I'll say, okay, well, let's consider it. 
And let's do the research to see if there is something that really grabs you about this university. So you can talk about that being the reason you want to go there. And by the way, all my family went there too, right? It's not my family went here, so I'm going here. And that's the whole story. Right. Right. So, yeah, I'm always worried about that because I think that was my experience. Right. Not that I was a legacy at any of these places, but I was doing it for the wrong reasons. That led to a lot of challenges. Yeah. And outside of figuring out the college of choice, there are a lot of other issues that have led to anxiety and depression in our young people. Oh, yeah. uh, During this pandemic period. So from your perspective, what is happening in our schools that's causing a lot of this anxiety and depression among our young people? Yeah, it's a great question. And um, it is a hard one to answer. I think there are some concrete things that we can point to. Um, I also think this is a systemic issue that has been festering for a very long time. And COVID really brought it to the forefront of everyone's attention because you couldn't ignore the mental health impacts that came along with COVID and remote schooling, right? Um, So caveat here, I am not a licensed mental health professional. I'm not gonna give you clinical definitions of anything, but I can tell you what I see just among our clientele. I see a huge increase in anxiety and depression. And as you said, especially among young women. Um, I think there are two main factors that are leading to this and that typically lead to anxiety in adolescence, right? Again, you know, I'm not a clinician, so take this with a grain of salt. One of it, one of those things is uncertainty, right? When we don't know what we're supposed to do, what's expected of us, uh, when the path ahead is unclear, it feels like we don't have control that can lead to anxiety. And I mean, what better example of an uncertain situation can you think of <laughs> other than COVID, right? It just threw everything into disarray. College kids were sent home. School was canceled. <laughs> Parents were like, "What? how am I supposed to work and take care of all of my children and manage their education and make sure they're engaged? And how do we keep ourselves safe, right? All of those things are happening. And um, COVID also introduced some more uncertainty into the college process, which I think has always been a little uncertainty because, you know, it's so selective at the top ends that people don't feel like they have a lot of control. They're always asking what's the secret. You know, they they think there's a secret that somebody knows that they're just not being told. Um, But the additional anxiety that COVID added to that process was all of a sudden, almost everybody's extracurriculars were canceled right? You couldn't play sports anymore. You couldn't go volunteer in a soup kitchen. You couldn't do things because that would mean you couldn't be socially isolated. Um, So people are like, well, what do we do about that? Right? The grades, most schools um, that spring of 2020 decided to do pass fail for that semester. Right? And everyone's like, what's a college going to think about you know, me having a pass in AP calculus instead of an actual grade, you know, Um, but everybody was in that situation. So colleges figured out what to do. The biggest thing I think that um, created additional uncertainty in the college process was the fact that many vast majority of colleges went test optional, meaning you didn't have to take the SAT or the ACT in order to apply. And 
you would think, and I know this is what colleges were hoping, was that would reduce anxiety and reduce barriers to entry, right? And in some cases, it has done that because, you know, like your story, Kwame, um, students can't say, oh, that school is looking for over 1,400. I, I can't possibly be a fit for it. Now they can say, oh, if that's test optional, I could apply without my test scores. All of this right. other stuff is really strong. So now maybe I do have a chance at those schools. So in some ways, it did create more access. But because there is a choice of you could submit or not submit, so many families are like, well, what's a score that's good enough to submit? Are they just saying you don't need scores and really you do? Like, how do we navigate that decision? Because the decision was not being made for them, right? The school wasn't saying, we don't want your test scores. They weren't saying, we do want your test scores. They're like, you decide, <laughs> right? So that has created just a frenzy of uncertainty among families. It's probably the question I get most often these days is like, how do we decide? Do we do the SAT? Do we do the ACT? Do we do test optional? Like, you know, we're right at this school's average. Is it going to help us to submit or is it going to hurt us? There are just no clear answers to some of those things. We have general guidance, but, um, you know, it it's a little uncertain. So families are really stressed out about that. So the uncertainty is one thing I think that is contributing to this increased anxiety. Um, the other thing, and um, this uh, I don't think was totally impacted by COVID, but it, it was in, in sort of a weird way indirectly, is comparison to others, right? Mm -hmm. Because people know the college process is so selective, um, students are always saying, oh, wait, that kid in my class is like doing a little better than me or doing more activities than me or his parents sent him to Costa Rica for the summer and he built a school. Like, what did I do? Right. Um, and they're comparing themselves to each other. And that creates this sort of little, this rat race. Right. And um, kids are being overscheduled. They're taking on too much. They feel pressure to keep up with everybody else. And that just means the bar gets set higher and higher and higher. And they have no time for social lives or rest or fun. Um, and they're all burnt out just as much as adults are burnt out right now. Like our teenagers are burnt out and that's a real problem, right? Because this is such an important developmental stage. Um, they can't have their lives feeling like it's a job yet, right? Right? Where they're working 24 seven, they're just always on. Um, and that I think is a product of um, that sort of comparison, competition, um, and then underlying it all is sort of our, all of our internalized capitalism of time is money. You have to be productive every second of the day. Um, and I think that's a really dangerous thing that we need to talk about more. Yeah. The grind culture is toxic. Mm -hmm. This, this mm -hmm. idea of perfectionism and wanting to just be the best all the time and always be on. Mm -hmm. yeah, it's, it's just not healthy. Mm -hmm. But I, as you were talking about test optional schools, mm -hmm. I'm thinking, let's say you're a student who didn't do a whole lot of community service or extracurricular activities, because that's usually mm -hmm. a part of the whole equation when colleges look at your, your records, because a cumulative record of what you've done, right? right? Maybe taking SAT is a viable option 
in that situation because, okay, I don't really have a whole lot to show for in terms of just extracurricular, but maybe if I score pretty high in the SAT, that could be my ticket into the school. But mm-hmm. but then let's say it's a situation where, you know, I have I've done work studies, I've done externships, you know, I've done a whole lot within my school. I feel pretty good about my record as is. Maybe I don't need to submit or do an SAT or an ACT to get into this college because mm-hmm. you have all this other my stuff. My body of work now speaks for itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and absolutely that's the way students should be thinking about it. I will say I always want to see how could you score on the SAT before you make that decision. Let's get a little data. And the great news is the SAT has 10 free practice tests on its website. You can access them through Khan Academy or through the College Board website. The ACT also has free practice tests on its website. A student can take those under time conditions and just take a temperature, see where you are, right? Because if you are so far off from, you know, what a college might consider a great score and for every college that's different, if you're so far off from that, then yeah, move on. Don't worry about it, right? Well, you have the data, you know that's not gonna be how you demonstrate your strengths and maybe it's somewhere else. But even if you are that kid who has, you know, all of this community service and accolades and all this stuff, I wouldn't just say, oh, I don't need it because I got all this. Like if you can score well, it's worth your time to show that to a college. So I always say after 10th grade, have a student do a practice test of each, right? And some some schools do this already. They do a pre-ACT in the spring of 10th grade, and then they do the PSAT in the fall of junior year. And you can compare those two things and see what looks okay. You know, hopefully someone in your world can help you look through that. We have articles on our website about how do you how do you take that information and what do you make of it? Um, I did a, a, a talk on this just uh, a month ago, I think. Um, how do you decide the pathway and what might those different pathways look like? That's really available um, on our website as well. So um, talk to somebody who knows and then get an expert opinion on, you know, given where you are today, what would it take for you to get to the score that might be helpful for you at the colleges that you're looking at? And then you weigh the opportunity cost. Do I have three months to study? Do we have money for a tutor? Am I disciplined enough to do this using the free resources that are out there? Because there are a lot of good free resources out there, but students have to be disciplined enough to to actually follow through and do the practice. Um, And so you weigh the cost benefit. If it's going to be a distraction from your grades or from a part-time job or, um, you know, something else that's really meaningful and important in your life, then, you know, it might not be worth it for you. Um, but for some students, it's going to be worth it. And, and then they can d- use that as another sort of point of strength in their application. Where were you 20 years ago? Oh, I, I know. I wish I had someone like me 20 years right. ago. Come on. Oh, I definitely missed the mark there because one thing that I did not do is take a PSAT. Oh, yeah. I, I, I can acknowledge that. I didn't yeah. take a PSAT. And I feel like if I had done that, I probably would not have taken the SAT three times mm-hmm. in order to crack over a thousand because I could tell I wasn't fully prepared for it. I studied for it. I thought I did. Yeah. But, you know, when I look at the results the first couple of times, okay, 
I got to get together. So thank yeah. you so much for mentioning the PSAT and the pre-ACT because those yeah. are critical assessments that you need to take to see kind of where you are, where you stand, and mm-hmm. then develop a plan from there on how to study. Yeah. And, you know, I'm, I'm not going to pretend that they're perfect uh, tools for this right. assessment, right? Colleges know that they're not perfect either, right? The statistical research has shown that they only help colleges predict which students are going to be successful in college by like a, just a small fraction of a percentage. Um, and, and grades actually predict much better than just the SAT or the ACT. Um, so, you know, there are inherent biases and problems in those tests. And for some students, it's a, it's a hurdle that they're not going to be able to overcome. And thankfully, we now live in a world where colleges are willing to admit that. And many colleges are permanently test optional. The University of California system is currently test blind, meaning even if you did have a perfect score, they're not going to look at it, right, to evaluate you for, for um, uh, admission. So there are a lot of opportunities for, for those kids who just feel that the SAT or ACT is beyond them. Yeah, I hear that. Now, I'm thinking about our parents, and this is my last question before we get to the lightning round. Okay. Now, we've talked about our students and young people, you know, for a good amount of time, but our parents, they go through their own pressures as well because they're Mm -hmm. thinking to themselves, all right, I got to fill out a FAFSA form. I got to make sure that I'm able to raise enough money for my child to be able to go to college Mm -hmm. and register for their classes, you know, and this is something that I know my mom went through, you know, with her, with her company and, and then making sure that I was always able to stay in school. So mm-hmm. I want to know what can employers do to alleviate some of that pressure off of our parents who are doing their absolute best to get their children prepared for this next level of college. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Um, This is a really interesting question because, you know, I wish we lived in a society where our government was doing everything they could to make college affordable and, you know, easier to access, things like that. Um, But, you know, for reasons we won't go into, uh, that doesn't look like it's happening. Um, But employers really do have an opportunity to step up and help with some of these things, especially when they're really trying to retain and attract good talent. And research has shown that working parents are actually more creative, more proactive, better at collaborating than, um, you know, other employees um, because of their sort of lived experience of having to do that in their in their households with their children. Um, So um, one thing uh, that, uh, you know, I talk to employers about a lot is supporting that sort of education management role that parents have to go through, right? Um, Childcare, obviously, needs for childcare don't stop when your child turns five or six and they start going to kindergarten and first grade. Um, And many employers will subsidize childcare or daycare for parents with very young children, but then they do almost nothing (laughs) for students who are, or for parents who have, you know, students who are a little bit older. Um, So I I like to talk about expanding that range of support, and it might include um, information from an educational consultant around like, what do you need to do in the college process? How do you fill out the FAFSA? Um, What kind of scholarships are available either through that company 
or through networks that that company can connect you to, right? So um, information can be very helpful. Money, of course, is very helpful too, right? Giving employees a stipend towards their students' education, whether that's, you know, for their college fund, for, um, you know, working with somebody on uh, test prep or, or hiring a tutor for their kid, knowing that they have access to something like that can be very helpful for parents. Um, and then um, just helping them uh, find the time and the mental space to be able to devote the time that they need to devote to whatever is happening with their children, whether that is, you know, a mental health crisis that they might be dealing with or a medical issue or, you know, the stress of the college process or just the stress of school in general, right? And I think that's why so many people really love remote work because it allows for that flexibility um, uh, when you don't have to, you know, be away from your family. You don't have to travel to the office and feel like you're in this little bubble at the office that is where you're supposed to ignore everything that's going on in your life, right? When you're working remotely, everyone has to, um admit that you have a life. I mean, you can see in my home right here, what's behind me, right? Like you have a window into my life. And I think it creates a little bit more empathy and understanding. Um, but of course we need structures to be able to support um, remote work in a way that each, each each company can can live with, I suppose. And each employee can live with. Yeah, well said, well said. But Sheila, we could go on and on for, for hours because kids. there's so much we could talk about but I do want to respect your time and I thank you for coming on because this is an important conversation that a lot of our parents need to hear in order to better prepare the kids for college and beyond. So I, yeah. I thank you for this valuable information. Yeah. Thank you. So uh, before we wrap up, we do have a quick lightning round, just mm -hmm. a few quick hit of questions to close us out. These always um, make me so nervous. Okay, I'm going to do my best. Don't worry. These are easy ones. <laughs> okay. All right. Favorite self-care activity? Um, I think it's um, having acupuncture done. I don't get it done enough. Um, it's not painful. But what I really love okay. about it, beyond the benefits of, you know, the actual, like, acupuncture, whatever magic is working in my body, I have to sit still for, like, an hour. I can't be on my phone. I can't be reading something. I just have to sit. Um, and that, like, forced time to sit with my thoughts and reflect and relax is so valuable to me. Uh, cool. Who are your favorite poets to read? Mm, oh, that's a great question. So, you know, I do love Rumi, this book again that I'll hold up. Um, he wrote in Persian. This book is obviously in English. It's translated by a very good poet who doesn't know Persian, um, which is why I ended up, you know, going to um, uh, study the language and, and try to read it for myself. So I do love Rumi. Um, but a modern poet that I really love is Rupi Kaur. Um, she's just fantastic i love reading her stuff uh cool yeah and if you can invite three influential figures that are alive to dinner who would they be i i, I struggle with these questions so much because it's like i don't i, I love I, i'll eat dinner with anybody you know um i just love that communion but if i have to pick uh influential people one person i will say is lizzo i just think she's fantastic 
I would love to have dinner with her. I think it would be so much fun. I would learn so much from her. We'd have a really good time. Um, I think, uh, you know, let's go with one that is obvious, like Michelle Obama. I think she's such an amazing role model and like a leadership figure. It would be great to just talk with her one-on-one. Um, and if I she's third, I don't know. I really like musicians. What if I could sit down with Prince? Ooh, yes. That would be good. That actually works out because Lizzo and Prince coming from the Minnesota area. They got right, right. And I know um, Prince was a huge influence on Lizzo. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I see that where works, you're going yeah. with that. that it, works, it definitely yeah. works. Yeah, great uh-huh. table. Thank you. All right, Sheila, you're off the hot seat officially. Oh, thank God. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> see, it wasn't too bad, right? No, it wasn't that bad. It wasn't that bad. Yeah. So um, before you leave us, please let people know how to connect with Cigna Education. And also, if they want to connect with you on social media, please let them know your handles, our audience. Yeah, sure. So I'm not really on social media because uh, I'm of that generation. Um, but I am on LinkedIn. So you can just find me on LinkedIn. Just look up my name. I'm probably the only Sheila Akbar out there. Um you could find information on Signet at our website, signeteducation.com. And our blog is linked right there, too. All right. Y'all heard it. So make sure you hit up the Signet website. Get some information about their services. They're doing great work. Sheila, it's been an honor to have you on. And I hope we can do this again another time. Yeah, I would love that. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Yes. All right. Have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, y'all. So we're about to end another fantastic episode of our Day Talk Educators Live. And as always, I wish you all good morning, good afternoon, good night, wherever you are in the world. And we're going to do this again another time. Peace out, everybody. Thank you for listening to the Identity Talk for Educators Live podcast. Make sure to follow us on Instagram with the handle at Identity Talk for Educators Live, and that's a numeral four in the middle. You can also subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and all other streaming platforms. We're always striving to provide you with quality content. So if you love what you heard tonight, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And to check out the video episodes of the podcast, you can visit our website at www.com identitytalkforeducators.com. Thank you and have a great day.